Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. We're Chip and Joanna Gaines. Look how strong he is. We take the worst house in the best neighborhood and we turn it into our client's dream home. Are you guys ready to see your house? (gasps) Oh Oh my gosh. Oh my (laughs) god. Do you have the guts to take on a fixer-upper? Well, hi, everyone. My name is Chris, if we haven't met before, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And welcome to week two of Fixer Upper, our sermon series that we launched last week on Easter Sunday. And Robert really kind of laid out the vision for this series last Sunday. That really, as a church and as people, we seek to be committed to two renovations. The first renovation is that of personal renovation, beginning to understand more and more the call that God has placed on our lives to be growing in him spiritually, that as we follow him, as we learn to live his way, that we will be growing in all the ways that God is calling us to. And everyone is a fixer-upper. None of us are complete. None of us are finished. And God is calling each of us into that type of personal renovation. But it extends further because the second essential renovation is that of the world that surrounds us. See, we're not seeking renovation for ourselves to simply become the best version of ourselves, but we seek personal renovation so then we can be sent out on mission into this world to reach this world for Christ, to show his love, to show his gospel message, to show his justice to all of the world that surrounds us. And so for these six weeks or so, we'll be committing ourselves to those two principal renovations. And so that's exactly where we start this morning. We continue to study the book of Nehemiah. So I would encourage you, pull out a Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Every single person needs a Bible today because we're going to be reading a lot of verses. They're not going to be on the screen. We're going to be working our way through almost six chapters over the next two or three hours or so as we work through this message. So make sure that you have a Bible there in front of you because I don't want you to miss any of this from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a fascinating book to study because Nehemiah was written by a man who was Jewish, but he was living in Persia at the beginning of the book. See, Persia at this time was a regional superpower. Judah, where Jerusalem was, had been conquered originally by Babylon. Babylon is still the symbol of evil to this day, kind of in biblical literature, also of delays on the LIRR, I think. So Babylon is kind of the symbol of evil. But then Persia had conquered Babylon. Then what had happened was Persia didn't mind so much if some of the Jewish people started to go home. One of their kings had issued an edict soon after uh, Persia conquered Babylon. and said, listen, if, if the Israelites, if the Jewish people want to go home, that's fine. So they kind of slowly started trickling home, but not any sort of concerted effort, not in a real organized way, and it turns out not in a real effective way. So we're going to look first at the first four verses in Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. That's definitely how you say it. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, 
Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah arrives at this point where he's carrying a heavy burden because he realizes renovation needs to happen. Jerusalem is not where it needs to be. It's unprotected. Its walls are down. Its gates are burned. Renovation needs to happen. We find him here in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. It's a long way of saying it's kind of November and December of 445 B.C. And so we know from history that it had been a history period of almost 80 years now that the Jewish people could have been going back, and yet Jerusalem wasn't rebuilt, the walls weren't fixed, and the gates were burned. So he knew renovation needs to happen, and it needs to happen now. And Nehemiah was equipped in a very interesting position because he was cupbearer to the king. I know a lot of you guys don't have a cupbearer in the office. It's not a position that's not as common today, but a cupbearer would sort of be combined with a few things. It wasn't simply a person who brought the king something to drink. It wasn't just a servant. There was also a role of being a protector. He would have checked the king's food and drink before he ate it. It was sort of a bodyguard-type position. His king that he served was Artaxerxes. His father, King Xerxes, had been killed by his own bodyguard in his sleep, according to Aristotle. So these are positions that would have been taken very seriously, watching over the king. Not only that, it's clear that Nehemiah stayed with the king while he ate, and they would talk. So it became an advisory-type position. So Nehemiah didn't just have a burden for renovation, he also was equipped to do something about it. So let's look at chapter 2. Verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governor of Trans-Euphrates, so they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests." The very first verse, he said, this is in the month of Nisan. So if you study the old calendars, this is four months that has passed. So from the moment that Nehemiah was convinced that renovation needed to happen, until now, four months had passed. Four months that he said in chapter 1 was prayer, grieving, and fasting. 
So if you're praying, grieving, and fasting, four months is a long time. He sat there burdened by renovation. And so four months passed, and Nehemiah sort of prompted this conversation with the king by sort of allowing the king to see that he was upset. And then it's a very fascinating conversation between them because what happens is Nehemiah says, well, I have a burden for renovation. And the king says, oh, I'm, I'm very interested in that. What do you need? Nehemiah says, you know what's funny? You should ask. And he seems to pull out his notes and he says, well, here's what I need. First of all, I need, you know, here's the timeline of when it's going to happen. Now I really need you to write letters to all of the kings along the way of the trans-Euphrates because, of course, you oversee them. I want to make sure that they let me and all my people through. Then I need another letter from you to the keeper of the royal park because I'm going to need wood to build the walls, to build the house. It's like he is totally prepped for this conversation, okay? Suddenly, this great you know, detail-oriented conversation happens. You know, I don't know if he had an iPad. I don't know if he had Asana, some sort of planner. But he had notes. He was ready to go. So Nehemiah, while he was burdened with renovation, wasn't only praying. He was also planning. And so he is sent out. The king of Persia says, you can go. He gives him everything he needs. He actually adds some other troops to go with him. So he sort of rolls as an armed, you know, guard. And the renovation starts. I wish this was the end of the sermon. Not just because it's sunny and nice outside. But I wish this was the point. I wish this was the message of the Bible. Listen, all you have to do is pray, plan, and get to work. And everything's going to work out great. But we've only covered two chapters in Nehemiah. The rest of the book is left. Because we all know once you start renovation, things happen. If you watch the Fixer Upper TV show, it usually starts the same way. They look at about three houses. Each house is not quite ready to go. Each house has different needs. They talk about their budget. They eventually pick a house. Then they get started. Chip and Joanna, they, you know, Joanna will kind of propose a plan to them while Chip does demolition. Then they go to work. But sometimes things happen along the way. If you love the show, you may remember this from season two. Great house. I'm so excited that they bought this. Just look and see if there's hardwoods. When we find wood floors under carpet for our clients, it saves them a ton of money. Uh, cue the small hand. My hands gesture. are not small, Joe. <laughs> Quit saying Don't that. Do that when I'm talking. Six foot, easy hands, average size. Sorry, bud. Oh gosh. <laughs> look at look at that. Oh shoot. Yikes. Holy smokes, babe. That's water damage. Look and see if it's on that side, too. Man, Joe, this kind of scares me to death because this was the one thing she was kind of adamant about. Maybe I really can't, I can't handle it anymore. And when I saw that water damage, I thought, oh, crud, and I fell instantly into the <laughs> fetal position. What are you doing? Hey, that freaks me out. She said the only thing she cared about was that this house would not ever in the future or ever in the past have water damage. So what's the solution, baby? And you replace that rotted wood. All I could do to soothe myself was bang my head up against the wall. We're going to have to think this through because we got water coming into the house here. We got all the water that happens kind of in this back deal. 
I mean, this could get into the hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in a heartbeat. If that's all there is here, it's not gonna be too big of a deal, a couple hundred dollars. But what always makes me nervous is when you get underneath the plywood and you find that some of the floor joists are messed up, or maybe even something a little more significant than that. You know, I mean, this could get into $1,000 pretty quick. We can fix it, bud. You know, the biggest thing to the goalies is they don't want water issues in the future. And so, I mean, this looks dramatic, and it is dramatic. And we're bulldozing a big retaining wall. I mean, this thing runs the whole length of the backyard, almost four foot tall, tons and tons of backfill. I mean, we had to bring in some heavy hitters for this one. Wow, look at this, Joe. I know. We are rocking and rolling over here at the Gully Project. I mean, we've got all the exterior windows replaced. We've got the house painted. We've got a lot of the framing done on the interior, so I'm starting to run some sheetrock. We've got all the rough-in electrical and plumbing, but there's still one big issue that I hadn't even gotten to tell Joe about yet, and I got to get her over here to figure this thing out. Hey, bud. Hey, kid. What are you doing? What's this thing? This is the drain pan for the HVAC. It's literally rusted out in two spots. The AC unit won't work. The unit itself was rusted in three or four major spots. And so we've got two bad options. We can repair the option for a small fortune, or we can replace the option for a slightly more than a small fortune to get a brand new system with $7,800. And it gets them all new duct work from the ceiling down. How much down. did you say that was? $7,800. So sometimes you're just getting started, you're hoping to put in hardwood floors in the den, and you end up with an excavator in your backyard. Or you're re-insulating around the fireplace, and you end up putting in brand new central air. I mean, these are the things that happen in renovation. And the same thing happens to Nehemiah. If you look at chapter 3, they get to work. They're actually rebuilding the wall in like 40 different sections. He's pulled together teams, some people based on occupation, some people based on residency, some people based on family, some people based on skill. They have this huge plan running. It's going great. Then things start to happen. And in Nehemiah, a lot of the opposition comes from a man named Sanballat. He's introduced in the last verse of chapter 2. Sanballat is the governor of Samaria. And you may remember this map from last week when we looked at the Persian Empire. Okay, it's kind of, you know, L-shaped. And so Persia is obviously all the way to the right. Remember, Nehemiah said he was in Susa. You can see it there on the very, very edge. Now he's traveled to Jerusalem. Samaria would be the very next territory north of Jerusalem, just to the north. Okay, so it's not explicitly stated in Nehemiah why Sanballat is so against the renovation of Jerusalem. But it seems pretty clear when you look at it geographically what's happening. There's no territory a whole lot past Jerusalem other than Egypt, who was still a regional superpower at the time. Nobody was going to mess with Egypt. So if Jerusalem became renovated, if they incorporated, if they decide to once again become their standalone country and rebel against Persia, they would be a threat to Samaria, who was immediately to their north. And whether Sanballat was hoping to have more area under his control, whether he was simply trying to protect what is his, we don't fully know. We just know that it was not in his best interest at all for Jerusalem to be renovated and well-organized. So he rose up against them. Interestingly, Sanballat is verified in some of the old Egyptian documents as well that are not used as sources in the Bible. And so he was regionally powerful. People knew of him. 
So he puts all sorts of problems into the renovation. First in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, this is sort of his sidekick, who was at his side said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. So he begins with ridicule. He says, wow, you guys have no idea what you're doing. This isn't going to work. You're stupid. This isn't a good idea. Ridicule is hard. He goes right after them. He's you know, very much kind of a know-it-all, sort of a wise guy, you know, saying, listen, you don't know what you're doing. I'm so much smarter than you. If you're committed to renovation, you will face ridicule. People will tell you you don't know what you're doing or that you're doing the wrong thing. Anyone who goes after renovation will see ridicule. Sanballat goes further. If you go down to verse 7 of the same chapter, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Now they're not just ridiculing them to their face. They're actually going to fight against them. They're going to give willful, intentional opposition to his project, which in their case meant war. And Nehemiah had to make all kinds of adjustments to work on this issue. If you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see that Nehemiah pulls some of the men off the work, and they have to be sentries on patrol. They're posted in strategic positions. You'll see that at other times, he takes half the men. They have to be the army while the other half are working. Another time, he says, listen, if your job is carrying things, you're going to carry things with one hand. You're going to carry a sword in the other. And he said, if you live outside of town, you, you can't go home at night. We need you to stay here in town. I mean, these are major adjustments to the renovation plan because of this opposition. If you look at verse 21... He kind of summarizes it. Chapter 4 still, he says, So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, Have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. This is a big change to the work schedule. Nehemiah says, all right, here's what we're going to do. Obviously, we're working slower now because some people aren't working. They're now guards. So we're going to work every second that the day is up. Everyone's going to stay in town overnight. Oh, and by the way, when you're sleeping, that is when you're going to work on security. So he puts a 24-hour work schedule in place as a result of this opposition. If you are committed to renovation, you will face opposition, and you'll have to make changes to your plan. It goes even further in chapter 6. The same guys, Sanibalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, they heard that the walls were rebuilt and not a gap left in it. This is verse 1. Though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. So the walls are done, but there's no gates yet. Sanibalot and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. This does not seem like a good idea, right? 
the active enemies of Nehemiah say, listen, I know you're almost done. Tell you what, why don't you take a break? Let's go out of town together, away from all of your people, and let's have a meeting. It's a distraction at best. It's murder at worst, right? Nehemiah says, but they were scheming to harm me. We're with you there. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Would you read that with me? I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. You don't have your Bible open anymore. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. Each time I gave them the same answer. So they're trying to distract him. They're trying to pull him off the work. Then it goes deeper. The fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, turns it his own friend and says, he says it too, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So let us meet together. They try to blackmail him. They say, you know, the king who's all the way over in Persia who supported this whole project. Yeah, we're going to tell him that you're rising up against him, that you're doing all of this to oppose him and you're going to take his territory from him at the end. It's blackmail. It's gossip. It's lies. Nehemiah says, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. If you're committed to renovation, people will go after your reputation. They will trash you publicly. They will trash you privately. They will say that you don't know what you're doing. They'll say you're doing the wrong things. They will talk about you behind your back if you're committed to renovation. And you know what? I wish we could blame all of our problems on everyone else. Sometimes we bring the problems on ourselves, right? Recently, Chip and Joanna did a Facebook Live chat, and someone asked them a question about that, about a time that they actually caused their own problems in their own project. This is what they said. Tell us about a project that didn't go as planned and how you overcame the obstacles. Funny you should ask. I've got a lot of examples about projects that didn't go as expected, but I'm going to let Joe feel this one because mine end up with inappropriate thoughts about the homeowners. <laughs> so there was one project where I was going to spread my wings and I had a $20,000 budget and it cost 11000 to paint the house. <laughs> and I painted the house the wrong color. And when I pulled up to the house, all the neighbors were looking at me going... I remember that. I mean, they really so, they wanted to kick her out of the homeowners association. Basically, she was looking for buttercream. Turned out school bus yellow. It was neon. Slightly, it slightly was ne different. So I had to spend my entire budget repainting. Repainting. Really sad, but I learned. I learned. Don't go buy those little swatches. You know, you got to paint a big section before you make a decision. Fair enough. Fair okay. enough. Okay. What's your favorite day of the year besides demo day? Christmas. So we can't always look outward and blame everyone else for our problems. Sometimes we bring the problems on ourselves. 
This is what Nehemiah chapter 5 is all about. We're not going to go into it, but what happens is all the workers, they start to turn on each other. One group says, we're working so much harder than that group. Another group says, we're the ones who have to stay in town even though we live out of town. A third group says, we had to borrow money from that group in order to pay for our part of the wall, and they're charging us interest. A fourth group says, that ain't nothing. We had to sell our children into slavery to pay for our part of the wall. Nehemiah says, what are we doing? How can you be charging interest to each other? How can you be turning on each other? And he has to soothe all of that conflict among the workers. Sometimes when you're committed to renovation, you bring the problems on yourself. And we have to work through it. But if you look at Nehemiah chapter 6, it tells you the walls were built and they were done in 52 days. This project came to completion. So what can you and I pull from this? What can be, we be reminded of in the book of Nehemiah? I think there's really three things that you could think about this week that we can pull out of these texts. The first is don't be surprised by setbacks. You know, so often people in their faith, they come to the Christian faith because they feel like this is going to be the path of least resistance or this is going to be the blessed life. And they think, you know, if I follow Christ, then everything else is going to work out, then everything else is going to be easier. But if you're committed to true, actual, lasting renovation, there will be setbacks. There will be problems. They are coming. We cannot be surprised. Most of the book of Nehemiah is about the setbacks. People look to him as one of the great leaders of the Old Testament, and it's because of how he responded to these setbacks. Think of it another way. One of my favorite theologians, Mike Tyson, he said it this way. <laughs> Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. You are going to get punched in the mouth. It's going to happen. You can't be surprised because so often we are surprised. You just, how can this be happening? I can't believe it. Or it can be more self-righteous. This shouldn't be happening to me. I don't deserve this. This isn't my fault. I've done everything the right way, but we can't be surprised by setbacks. Jesus talked about this. He said it in the Gospel of John. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Setbacks are coming. We cannot be surprised by them. It's just naivete. It would be silly to think that they're not coming. Every person you talk to about their renovation story, they mostly talk about the setbacks. They're going to talk to you about the town. They're going to talk to you about the permits. They're going to talk to you about the change orders. They're going to talk to you about the contractor. And usually at the end, they say, make sure you don't use our town permits contractor. or Because it's always about the setbacks. They are coming. Now, building upon that, once we realize the setbacks are coming, we have to stay faithful so often, people give up. Setbacks come, and they think, oh, this, this renovation is not going to happen. It's not for me. It's too hard. It's too expensive. It's too long. It's too whatever. They bail out. They pull the cord. They're done. They say, this is not something I can do anymore. But the key to surviving renovation is to stay consistent, to stay faithful, to stay in the work, to keep putting one step in front of the other. You've heard me say it before. How do you eat an elephant just one bite at a time? You have to stay faithful. You have to stay in it. You have to stay in the work. The writer of Hebrews, he said it this way. 
Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict, full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult, persecution. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. We simply must persevere. You have to stay in the work because the goal of renovation is always worth it. Think of it this way. Life transformation comes through adversity. For your personal renovation, these setbacks are actually required in order for the work to be accomplished. And this is where a little bit of our metaphor breaks down because if you're renovating your house, I actually believe that the town should be reasonable, that the contractor should be under budget and faster than they promised, that the architect should do the work faster than they said they would, and that you should get higher quality work than you even hoped for. I think that's how renovation should work in this world. But personal renovation, we're promised by scripture that these setbacks are actually the laboratory in which the training takes place in order for renovation to happen. This is the demo in your life. You have to face these setbacks. If you do not see adversity, you will not grow. I wish that wasn't true. It just is. The only time you grow is in adversity. Paul said it this way in Romans. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And don't move quickly past that, because this is one of the greatest promises of our faith, that God promises to use the adversity in your life for you. He's committed that all of the adversity, all of the setbacks, the renovation that you're in, he is using it to form your character into the woman or the man that he created you to be. That none of your suffering is wasted. None of the setbacks are wasted. He will use it for his purposes. Because it's in the person of Christ himself that we understand how true and lasting renovation happens. Because we don't you know, overcome setbacks on our own strength. We don't stay faithful through our own efforts. We don't grow through adversity all on our own. This is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's follow in the footsteps of the person of Christ because he has overcome the true and greatest adversity. In John 16, Jesus was talking about this type of soul renovation. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So the renovation that we're talking about is following in the footsteps of the person of Christ. As we follow him, as we learn to live his way, we become empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out on mission in this world and to accomplish the renovation that he has placed in our lives. So know that you're going to get punched in the mouth. Jesus is with us to help us grow and still renovate in that moment. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your scripture. Thank you that you've called us to a great and noble purpose, to be renovators of this world. 
Forgive us for the times when we lose our faithfulness, when we lose our strength and our resolve because we look to our own uh, self. Instead, God, allow us to be empowered by the person of Christ to live the Christ-centered life and accomplish your renovation for this world. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.